Gold from The Professor is in. Welcome to the new version of our podcast. We are recording our podcast live on Wednesday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you subscribe to The Professor is in newsletter to be sure and get that link if you'd like to join us live. Or you can listen to the edited version in the podcast form the following Tuesday. If you'd like to support the live or the podcast, you can head over to bit.ly slash ourpod, B-I-T dot L-Y slash O-U-R-P-O-D and help support these ongoing programs. Thanks a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Facebook Live. We are delighted that you're here with us today. I am Dr. Karen Kelsky of The Professor Is In. And I am Kel Weinhold of The Professor Is In. And just to remind you, Facebook Live becomes our podcast every Tuesday. So, Karen, Mm -hmm. what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about what to do concretely uh, pragmatically, not emotionally, but, you know, logistically, uh, if you didn't get a job this year, an academic job, and you are planning to be on the academic job market next year. And to be clear, we have a podcast from last year on how to manage the disappointment of not getting the job that you want. So we're not um, ignoring your emotional well-being. For those of you who have not signed up for our mailing list, um, if when you become a member of the mailing list, you get a month's worth of free advice. Oh, first week is on productivity. The second week is on the art of the article. The third week is on the sort of managing job documents and the academic job market. And the fourth week is on leaving the academy, if that's what you choose to do. Mm-hmm. And we have a survey that follows that up for anybody who goes through it. And we got a lot of uh, comments that people were looking for really concrete, tangible advice at different levels of the career. And today, this this topic seems to fit right in where we are in the moment because the job market is pretty much over. You know, there's straggling jobs everywhere, but but the big push is over and, and a lot of people didn't get what they wanted, right? They, mm-hmm. they didn't get the, the gift they were hoping to open on whatever holiday. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And as always, um, we'd love to hear from you in terms of uh, those of you who are on our Zoom webinar, writing into questions and comments into the chat box. And those of you who are on Facebook, please uh, give us your comments and questions. Because we love the interaction and the opportunity to hear from you, which is why we went over to the um, this platform is that so we could be in a real time conversation. Um, We Mm -hmm. not surprisingly talk to each other a lot. So. It's nice to have other voices in the mix. So we were just talking about, um, you and I, about that sort of first reaction to not getting what you planned on and what happens, what you called an overcorrection. So Mm -hmm. what what do you see as the overcorrection that people make? Well, hang on. Well, okay. I guess we can start there. We can Um, start somewhere else. I just, I thought that's where we talked about starting, but I might've made that up. So go right ahead. Well... No, I think that's probably a good place to start. People get in touch with me with some regularity and say, well, I tried uh, the academic job market for one year and it and I didn't get a job 
And so now clearly I have to leave academia. And I get why they say that, because that is certainly a message that I, you know, that that the message that I give in all of my events and my blog posts, social media is don't martyr yourself for the academic job market. It's very treacherous. It's financially precarious. And it is good to plan to move on quickly. But uh, one year of trying, depending on your circumstances, your budget and so on, your financial resources, one year of trying is probably not really enough to say that you gave it the old college try. Um, And especially when you don't necessarily know what you're doing. And it takes, it usually takes, it takes a lot of people one kind of catastrophic year in the market to really begin to understand what they're up against for it to all to come into focus. Mm -hmm. Until then, it's been really abstract. They kind of have a vague sense that, okay, it's going to be hard. Okay, I'm going to have to write these documents. Maybe I'll get an interview. But it's pretty hard to uh, know what you're really up against until you're literally on the market. So the first year, it's often like a first pancake. (laughs) It's like throw it out. And the second year is where you can really begin to bring your insights into it and, 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 and do some course corrections. So th- that's why I say that if you've tried one year and it has nothing's worked out, there, there are probably some things you can do. And I do a lot, most of my consulting. And in fact, every spring, my CV advanced strategizing service, which I'm actually going to be re-upping um, quite soon, actually, I do it annually every spring, goes into your CV and looks at it and says, okay, if you want to get it, try the academic job market next year. And I have no judgment if you do or you don't. I'm, uh, you know, neutral on that question. But if you tell me you do, then here's what I'll look for on your CV and tell you how to correct. So, so if we, let's go back. I just want to go back one step and say that, you know, you're talking about one year on the job market, but I think Mm -hmm. it's perfectly reasonable to talk about, you know, three years and four years on the job market and really This is an individual decision. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people want an answer of how many years should I keep trying this? Mm -hmm. And so for some people, one year may be all they can do. Mm -hmm. It's it's all you can manage Mm -hmm. financially, psychologically, whatever it is. And there's also, there are people who can do it longer for many reasons. So the first Mm -hmm. thing is to, I think, is to sit down and actually answer that first question. Do you want to continue? Instead of just automatically continuing or automatically quitting. Yeah. And if you want to continue, what mm-hmm. what is the reason that you're going to continue for, I guess, is my mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you know, just do that that test. Always do the test. Are you sacrificing your your financial, your emotional, your physical well-being in the service of this this dream? So, you know, and only you can answer that. Right. But in any case, so having moved on, we talk about that kind of thing quite a bit. So we did promise you pragmatic advice this week, and right. I really want to right. get to that. Yeah. So let's, so, let's, what's the first, what's the first thing you do? Well, the first thing I do is look at the CV and look how many peer reviewed journal articles there are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that a lot of you don't want to hear that and that, you know, a lot of folks might rail against the unfairness of it all, the privilege, the elitism you know, uh, the inequity of it in terms of who, what kind of grad students or academics in general, maybe even beyond grad school, have the, the, the resources to write peer reviewed journal articles and who do not. Absolutely valid, 100%. Uh, but I am going to set that aside for right now and say that when, um, when faculty on search committees look at your CVs and your application packages, 
you have to understand that typically they themselves are horrendously overworked. They're exhausted. They too have children who are home, you know, with COVID and with the disruptions of the of of, of K through 12 schooling. They are swamped. They, you know, with everything they have to get done, both their work and their home life. And so when they finally click open the applications to look at who has applied for their opening, they're probably going to give you one to two minutes per file at the point of initial review. And there may be 500 applications they have to get through and maybe even a thousand depending on the field. So the first thing you need to grasp is that they're going to look for all the shortcuts they can. They will absolutely take every shortcut that's available. And the primary shortcut that they have is to look at your CV and count how many peer-reviewed journal articles you have that are your first or sole author. And then they will also, they will consider the rank of the journal, not as if they'll disqualify you for not being in the peak journal of your field. That, that, that's not, I'm not talking that level, but they will attend to, they will notice the rank of the journals that you're publishing in. And that's the first thing that they'll look at. So can I, can I qualify that a little bit? Because I think one of the things that we want to do is we want to parse out different people's levels and experiences, right? So if you're a postdoc and you applied for postdocs and you didn't get postdocs, it's not necessarily going to be about the journal articles that you did. It may be about how you packaged yourself in relation to the postdoc. If you are applying for positions and... I know Karen will follow up right away here and say things are shifting so fast. Every place prioritizes those things. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, don't don't do this thing you're about to do. If you're about to say that the teaching colleges, you don't have to have the peer reviewed journal articles. Is that where you're going to go? No, I wasn't. Okay, where are you going to go? I was going to go to I think you need to use your big, big PhD brains and and do a little bit of research. I think you need to look at the CVs. And and to be honest, you should have done this to do the application, but look at the CVs of the places that you're applying and see, yeah, where rank maybe matters, how many, obviously publication matters. But if you're not packaging your letters to match the institutions that there's that yeah, the first corrective thing you could do is publish more, but you have to be publishing and working in the areas that matter for your position. And I think sometimes people like get so focused on, I have to get in the top journal that they forget they can get in other places. You know, I don't know. I was just, I was just adding a little bit of gray to it. I agree with you. Publications matter. And I agree. And I also argue that knowing the actual work of the people you're applying to work with also matters. So you can plan over the spring and summer to get closer to look like them, mm-hmm. whatever that. Yeah. Means. I mean, I guess I, what I want to say is uh, these are two separate things and, and I always have kind of two columns. The first is um, what needs to be on your CV. And the second column is how do you present what's on your CV? Right. I wasn't planning today to talk about how to present it because that's a lot of other, you know, content that we do quite a bit about uh, because people with absolutely splendid records still don't get shortlisted. Because they have, like you just said, Cal, they have told entirely the wrong story about what they're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. and you, you were pointing out that people's where they're choosing to publish may not be in sync with the search committee expectations. Right. And that's a problem as well. Right. But more often, um, I see the issue being less that because at the beginning career stages, there's a lot of variation in where people publish. 
And so just having any peer reviewed publication in it, like I always say, like I say in my book, the difference between zero and one is a whole universe. Mm -hmm. The difference between one and two, not as big, right. but to get from zero to one, to have that first peer reviewed journal publication, it almost doesn't matter as much which journal it's in as that you actually have. Right. One. That they can see your potential to be published. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And that you get it, that you just yeah. get it, that the job right. of an academic is to publish articles. Mm -hmm. And again, I know a lot of you are going to be like, that shouldn't be the job or the primary job. But that is, in fact, the shortcut that search committees use when they're reviewing these articles, when they have an hour to or these applications, when they have an hour to get through 500 um, applications. So, yeah, I think that the other thing about this is that like what I thought Kel was going to say that she didn't is that a lot of folks, even to this day in 2022, are telling a story to themselves and each other that this only what I'm saying only applies to R1 and elite institutions. And if they're not aiming for that, they don't need to take this advice seriously. And that is absolutely untrue. Uh, every single campus, basically, at this point, other than community colleges, is looking for peer-reviewed journal publications, and they can. They can because of the glut of applicants and their sort of greediness for status, and that they can demand more than they ever, that say these search committee members, than they were ever required to do themselves. This is just the escalation of standards, and it is simply reality. But I want to go back to a point that you made just b before we move on to the next point. I really want to highlight the fact that what you said about zero to one is huge. One, one to two is not as huge because I think people also get overamped, right? And they're like, there are people out there who are saying, but I had three peer reviewed journal articles and I didn't get the job. And that, that can be overdoing it, right? That you can go into jobs that, that you're expected to have three peer reviewed journal articles in your five years on the tenure, like that's the mark for tenure is three for the whole five years plus a something. Um, and so you have to I'm just, I'm, I already made the point, make sure you're doing the research about what is expected in the kinds of places that you want to apply. Because sometimes we say things and people take it as gospel, but we, we're talking R1 and they're talking, you know, small regional university or they're talking small Christian university. And I agree with you, they still care about publications, but if you go into small liberal arts college that it does not focus on publishing, which is there's not as many of those around, but if you did and you had a whole bunch of publications, it's going to set off a red flag that you don't belong there. So just do the research before you start. But bottom line, Karen's right. I'm not disagreeing with you got to publish shit. I'm just saying, don't get yourself out over your skis trying to do everything you required for tenure before you apply for the job. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, and you and so we're we're in a bit of a tension here right. because the fact is, and uh, that we would be we would it we would be in, unethical for us if we ignored the fact that to apply for tenure track jobs, you basically for many places you need what what amounts to a tenure case that it, that people who had the job prior. In other words, that what you are needing to be competitive to apply is what folks a few years ago had presented for their entire tenure case. The, again, we're talking, this is not, as you can see from this conversation, it's not black and white. It's not. There's a ton of variation. It depends on the institution and so on. But there, you know, if you're on social media, you see a lot of folks talking about how there's this expectation that you have a peer reviewed book 
<laughs> from a university press, in press or out, in order to be competitive for a tenure track job. And how impossible is that? It's terrible. I'm not defending this in any way. I'm only trying to accurately reflect how um, grueling these standards and expectations have gotten and how many institutions that you wouldn't think have become to expect this because they're like, they're what I call aspirational. And so what they discovered is that because the job market is so tight, they can demand this level of publishing that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they simply could not have expected, but now they, now they expect it. So, but like Kel says, this is like the, you know, you want to know, you want to know to whom, to, to where you are applying. And this reminds me of a conversation I had with a client just this week, because she said, well, we went through a quick diagnosis of her cover letter. And I said, this, 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 this are all, you know, uh, you know, not great there. That's what's harming you. I can see right away. And she said, well, okay, but if I fix all that, I mean, I'm only going to have the one cover letter. So then how's that going to work for this other kind of school? And I said, what are you talking about? You're going to have like eight cover letters. You're going to keep templates of eight different cover letters. You're going to have the cover letter for the for the for the liberal arts college and the cover letter for the R2 and the ever the cover letter for the postdoc and for the R1 and the one in one field and the one in the other field like me with the Asian studies versus anthro. And you're going to have all of those and you're going to tell a somewhat different story for each and every one of those. Right. Right. And, and we're, now we, we've done what we what we do, which is we get on one thing and then we go off on the track of how to do that. But so let's bring ourselves back okay. to the OK. So you look at your CV. That's the first yeah. step that you do. You say, mm-hmm. look, I but we skipped over a really important point mm-hmm. and somebody in the Facebook brought it on the Facebook stream, brought it up. So I think it's important to go back to. We forgot to say before you start it's really important to assess how far you got, right? Hmm. To know what to do next is to assess how far you got. So if you got, someone in, on the feed says, I got, I've been to repeated campus visits, mm-hmm. then your record is fine. There's nothing wrong with your record. And your presentation of your record. And your presentation Remember the of two your columns. Right? Both of your columns are solid. Your written presentation of your record and your record are competitive. If you get to the campus visit, in fact, you've managed the Zoom interview, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to pay attention to where you didn't go. I've applied to a hundred universities and all I've ever gotten is those little, you know, cards that say, thank you very much, if you're lucky, Mm -hmm. right? I've applied to a hundred universities and I made it to the the first round, I mean, the, the cut round in five of them. You're doing really well. So one yeah, of the things we want to reset expectations, if you apply to 50 and five of them invite you for the Zoom interview, that's a really good return. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, I applied for 50, I should have 50. No, that's not mm-hmm. the way it works. Unless yeah. you wrote 50 super detailed, perfectly crafted CV, you know. Uh, oh, even then. Well, even There's then, There's literally right? nothing you can do. So There's let's nothing. Say, let's say you... That anyone can do to get 50 interviews for 50 applications. Like you like can't do it. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. If you have five out of 50, you have absolutely knocked it out of the park. Blown the doors off. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you got your five interviews. Do you get stuck there? 
do you keep going, oh my God, I keep getting these interviews and I don't and go any campus visit. There's nothing wrong with your record. There's nothing wrong with your presentation of your record on paper. There's something wrong with your presentation of self in the interview and how mm-hmm. you're engaging with people. You're missing some key components, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can read Karen's book. You can work with us in all sorts of levels. You can look at a ton of blog posts to start to understand what am I doing wrong in the way I'm talking about my record mm-hmm. and what I plan to do? Mm-hmm. I will tell you that junior folks, after five years of, of doing interview interventions, that the barrier that needs to be worked on when people are not getting to that campus visit level is that they're still talking about their work and talking about themselves like they're grad students. They're not mm-hmm. positioning themselves as faculty and peers, and they're not talking like peers in the interview which is a big thing to jump up to, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. we get to the point that you keep going to campus visits and it keeps not working, right? So that means I've figured this out. I figured out how to talk your talk to here. And then I get here and something's not clicking when I get engaged in a group of people. Mm-hmm. Now, we can look at all levels of that, right? We can look at the, the university's um, hostility to people who do not operate and act like they do, right? Mm -hmm. So are you going to come in from traditionally marginalized communities and you're explaining and engaging with people in a very different way? Are Mm -hmm. you going to come in neurodivergent Mm -hmm. and you're going to talk to and engage with people in a very different way? Mm -hmm. All those things are at play. And we do a lot of time talking to folks in those categories of basically, and we talked about this last week, kind of, talking like figuring out how to talk the talk so you can have a conversation over a desk as things seem to be going back to face to face right like and i spend a ton of time helping people strategize how do you have a conversation across the desk in that office you got to do 10 of them in a row they're going to ask you all the same questions your brain's going to be fried let's Mm -hmm. here are the strategies Mm -hmm. and so Make your decisions based on where you hit the wall. Mm-hmm. So yeah. be, be careful that we're yeah, saying. Because mm-hmm. a lot of folks, I mean, that's the first thing when we have an interview intervention client, the first question we ask is, how have you done on the market so far? Yeah. Because we have to, I mean, we're like, in a way, we're like doctors who have to ask like, you know, that, that chart you have to fill out at every doctor's visit to, um, to, to, to rule out a bunch of things, you know how they do, like, do you have a history of high blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we have to know where have you gotten so far? Have you gotten to interviews? Have you gotten to campus visits? Are you brand new? You've never done anything. So some other alternative, because that tells us, you know, a solid 50% of what we need to know to know how to coach you through these interview questions. So that's absolutely right. I want to talk more about that actually, but I do want to touch base that when I do the the CV advanced strategizing service, um, the other two things I do look for are uh, and tell clients to work on and attend to are um, conferences, national and international conferences and grants and fellowships. And, and, and that, 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 that shortcut thing that these overworked search committee members are depending on to manage their workload through the initial stages of the search, they are looking for for peer-reviewed publications, conferences, and and fellowships and grants because those are shortcut indicators that you have been vetted by other committees of experts in your field 
and you have been accepted. And so they know, well, if all those other people have viewed this person as worthy of this major fellowship of this international conference and of this uh, journal, then surely I will as well. And it's going to be a time saver and that you're going to make it into the long short list just on the basis of that. And that's what is when I say peer review is the gold standard. Those are all peer reviews, three different kinds of peer reviews. Only peer, the only only journals have peer review in the way we talk about a peer review journal, but all grants and conferences are peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the short, those are the three points of the shortcut, the three kinds of shortcuts that you know you can be assured the search community members are looking at. And so please make sure that you either you have content in there, that it's up to date content, it needs to be 2020, 2021, 2022, and, um, and also stuff looking ahead for 2023. You can have stuff that's in press, that's in revise and resubmit. Uh, you can have future conferences that you've been accepted to. All of those future things can go on a CV as well. And, and again, um, it's really important here as you're thinking about those things to get creative, right? I need to have a grant. I need to have a fellowship. We are such a, the, the academy is so freaking colonized in its thinking that everything is always up, fast, top, better, climb, bigger, faster, <laughs> stronger, right? So- <laughs> Your advisor and the people around you may be saying, you need to apply for a NIH. You need to apply for a welcome grant. You need to apply for a winter Gren, right? You gotta, this is what you got to do. No, hang on. There's a whole bunch of middle range things that are accessible that are still peer reviewed. There are fellowships to pay to write your dissertation, right? There are these different things that it's like, I got, somebody thought my work was worthy enough to pay this amount toward me writing my dissertation. This thing happened here. So careful about the, I must pick the, the most like difficult to reach fruit or I won't get in because I think, I still think it's, I'm going to keep, I guess, I guess that's my theme today is careful, 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 careful. When you hear us say these things, don't fall into the trap of, it's got to be the best, the brightest, the biggest, the everything. That's not the point. The point is. Right. If it's I, not a Guggenheim, it doesn't count. Right. <laughs> it does I not can, need to be a Guggenheim. Yeah. I can publish an article. Look, I did. I can write a grant and get one. Look, I did. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's If it's a thousand dollar grant for X, mm-hmm. it's you know how to write a grant and you got it. Yeah. So adjust, 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 adjust. But I, I do want to go back to the conversation and follow up comment about how hard it is to talk the talk when it's not your culture. Mm-hmm. We talked about this last week about the tension between what the university should be and what the, what the university should welcome and the university should adapt to and how if we were to actually let people allow space, not let people, that sounds like top down. If we were, ex, we were in a place to create a space that people could communicate their information in a way that matches the way that they communicate their information in the worlds they grew up in, then we'll have a truly diverse university, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the sticky reality for us as we're talking about these things is like, and that's not here yet, and how do we get you in, and what are the things? And one of the things that I know is one of the things that a lot of people don't think about, and Karen's already alluded to it, is the pain points of the people who are already there, right? So they're there, they have, they're overworked, and their pain points are, am I gonna have to help you? 
am I going to have to, are you going to be able to do, if you're going to be able to fill this labor void that we have right now, are you going to be able to do these things? So that's the talk we need to figure out how to talk is to know the, the, the actual pain points of a tenure track system so you can address how you're going to put salve on those pain points. So it's mm -hmm. not so much I have to learn how to deliver this information exactly like some mediocre white man would deliver it, but I do need to have the information so I can make my information match your needs. Mm -hmm. And I see people a lot talk about how positions will benefit them mm -hmm. and not talk about, not address how their expertise will benefit the universe, will serves the needs, serves of, the the needs of the thing. As so disclosed in the job ad. Right. And so and, can I, I have a story to tell about that. So, okay. um, because this is where no amount of us talking about how to interview substitutes for actually doing an interview intervention right. uh, on a one-to-one -one basis. So I get really frustrated because it's like, I wish I could just take everything I know and somehow deliver through this screen into your brain so you would know what we know and you would see what we see because we have to talk in generalities, but it's not generalities. Right. Uh, when you get into prepping for your own interview, it's specifics, it's, it's your dissertation project and which five sentences you choose to deliver uh, because you have to make these unbelievably difficult choices because you've only got the five or six sentences to describe your dissertation, each one of those sentences, every word in it has to work. And you are not used to thinking like that. And so there, and so you, so you think about this and you think, well, this is just, you know, this shouldn't count or this is just, but I do a good job with that. Actually, you, you don't, you probably don't. And I'll give you an example. If you're stuck was, at that level, if you're stuck. Yeah, at that yeah, level. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, but people who aren't stuck at that level are not listening to her. They're not listening today because they're not, you know, they figured it out, but it's very difficult. The norm is not to understand. It is normative oh, yeah. to be confused by this. I'm it aware. is very unusual for this to come easily right. because you're not trained. Nobody's trained. That's part of why we do what we do. But anyway, a very common yet rather subtle mistake that people make is that, um, so I was just doing an intervention yesterday and I said to someone, how would you teach this core class, this, this intro class that they clearly it's in the job ad, you will be asked about it. It's literally in the ad. And she said, well, the main thing I want people to know is that this one thing is true about hydrology. And it was this incredibly obscure thing that was the topic of her doctoral research. This is an intro undergrad class. And I said, whoa, stop. The undergrads don't want to know about this really obscure, jargony word term concept about hydrology and transpiration and, you know, water flow. Like, no, that's not the intro hydrology class. That's going to have to be, you're going to have to reach undergrads where they are. You have to reach freshmen where they are. And that means saying students think, you know, take the water that flows out of their tap for granted. But water is actually a highly contested and political resource. Wars are going to be fought over water. In this class, I'm going to show them why and how humans can manage it, how we've you know fucked it up and how we can do it better. That's reaching an undergrad where they can be reached. The, the search committee knows this because they're already faculty. They already know about teaching undergrads. They already know the challenge. So they're listening for that. If you give them that doctoral thing, they're going to be like, oh, my God, she has no idea how to teach undergrads. But it, so you have to deliver things that are matched to real needs, not your mm -hmm. not your kind of like grad student brain needs, 
but actual faculty needs, which are which are things you don't have experience with. So I'm not blaming anybody for not knowing that. But you do. But despite that fact, you do have to know it. Did that? I hope that it, that example made sense. Yeah, it did. But I already know all the information, so we'll have to mm-hmm. tell me if it made sense, folks. Respond on Facebook or uh, or Zoom. I think the thing that 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 you sort of hit the nail on the head, and I'm going to go back to the pain points. Right here's a mm-hmm. pain point. If you're going to come and teach a class. What I really, really don't want is if I'm the dean, if I'm the department chair, if I'm the uh, dean of undergraduates, what I really don't want is to field a bunch of complaints about your class. <laughs> what I really don't want is for us to put a class on the books that people don't sign up for. That they flee from. That they flee from. So if you are ready to propose a class and you have not looked at their curriculum and you don't know their nomenclature and you don't know what the what the pet seminar number is. So if you can't say, you know, I have a course for your 310, your 310 elective seminar, then you've already told them I've looked, I've looked at what your people are already teaching and I'm matching that. And what happens is people go, here's my expertise, here's my course. And you don't have any idea what's happening in there, right? And that happens at the cover letter level, it happens at the interview level and it happens at the campus interview level. So understanding the pain points of a class, I need enrollment and I don't need complaints. So if you could please get me people and keep them quiet and move them toward their degree, right? Yeah. This needs to move them toward their degree. And prep them so that when we, more senior faculty, get hold of them in our 200 and 300 level classes, that we don't have to redo the intro because you screwed it up. Like they they, they need to know that you get that, that you're going to be a colleague working in a structure where your intro class has to serve the needs of the department as a whole. And everything you say in this, you think, I can't, that's too much. I can't deliver that in a, in one answer in an interview. Well, you can, you actually can. We show you how we, you know, I'm not saying you have to work with us. You can figure it out a variety of ways, but the fact is there is, there are success, effective and ineffective ways of delivering this. I'll give another example because I think examples, I think examples are great. But hang on, of- before you give another example, because okay. we're we're way over time, we're about to be way over time, and I want to make sure we touch on the key points of, okay. of, of what to do next. So let me just, let me repeat what I think we've done so far, mm-hmm. right? One of the things I, I think we've done so far is said, stop, assess, check <laughs> where you are, check if you want to go forward, check where you got stuck, when you got stuck, check and see what the departments you're applying for do at that level that you might have misunderstood. Educate yourself about the pain points of that department. That may be publishing. We're really pushing publishing. We're pushing this, but know them. Know to whom you are speaking. So what's next? Is there anything next after that? Well, well then actually, I mean, to be honest it's kind of stepping back for the 35,000 foot view of what you, what we've been talking about toward the end, which is be prepared to change. Understand that you need to change what you're doing. If I had to point to probably the litmus test between the people who 
get more traction and the people who get less. And I'm not going to say the people who get jobs and the people who don't, because the market is so terrible that there's, you know, that it's, it's not a meritocracy. So I'm not implying that at all. But 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 people who see improvement in their traction are people who are willing to go back to the drawing board and say, wow, okay, I completely misunderstood what this enterprise was. My letter was all wrong and I need to redo it from the ground up. My way of framing my teaching was all wrong. I need to redo it from the ground up. Everything that I thought was good about how to approach an interview was wrong. And I need to redo it from the ground up and be basically that, that willingness to pivot and to say, I need to learn it and, and to change. And there are some people who really can do that and want to do that or excited to do it. Some people kind of enjoy it. Other people grit their teeth and do it. And then some people just really are like, they should take me the way I am. And if they don't take me the way I am, then, then what? I'm not exactly sure how that thinking goes, but it's like, but then those folks are end up eight years on the job market, don't get anywhere and, and, and get really embittered. And I'm not by, and I'm not saying it's a meritocracy. And if you change stuff that that is going to unlock this magic lock, because no, I'm not saying that, but I do think that kind of, um, nimbleness does help you to move and stay flexible about your options. Yeah. And I'm also going to complicate that a little bit that I think there that I support, I would 100% support someone saying, I'm going to try this on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work saying, okay, it didn't work. So I, I, mm-hmm. I think it's okay to say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not playing the game. I'm going to mm-hmm. go in. I'm going to answer this the way I want to. Mm-hmm. Right. And no, it didn't work. And that means this is not the place for me. And I, I also support that. Totally I, agree. I, I totally agree. I support that as well. Uh, you'll notice that what I said was seven years yeah, getting yeah, yeah. embittered. Yeah, no, I got that. So I didn't really account for the people who were like, yeah, fine. I did it. I tried. I'm moving on. That's totally valid. But I just don't like to see people get caught in a kind of a in a in a rigid thinking mm-hmm. where it's like I have to keep trying this thing but I don't change the way I do it. And I keep getting a bad react or a, you know, outcome, but I just keep repeating it. Like that's, that's what I don't like to see. I think that's quite a bit less common now, but 10 years ago when the professor is in started, it was very common. Well, I also think it's that. common in humans. I think that like human beings think that, I mean, I, I wish that I thought I was conscious all the times of when I'm hitting my head against a wall. I don't think I'm very conscious a lot of times. Right. I'm like, no, sure. I'm absolutely so confident in the, like everything the I read, everything told me, I, everybody's advice told me. I mean, I think we cannot like discount advisor advice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about like how many experts we get advice from that we go, okay, well, I'll do that that way. And so you just keep pushing this rock up this hill and then you finally get to the top of the hill and it's like, what? What the hell? I I pushed this rock all the way up the hill and there was a truck over there. I could have driven it up, but this asshole told me I had to push it. And so you think you're doing the right thing. Yeah, of right? course. And if you yeah. think about like what 60,000 PhDs a year get churned out in the US and we probably talk to of those 60,000, finally, we, you know, we get about 600 of each or a thousand of the new ones mm-hmm. each about time. About a thousand. We get yeah. a thousand of the new ones each year. So mm-hmm. that's a really tiny number that's like going, like saying, wait, wait, 
I might need to do something different in a mm -hmm. system that is determined to Germans. make you do things the same way all the time. Right. So right. I guess yeah. I just kill. So you're you're totally right. Yeah, I really appreciate this comment in the in the Facebook uh, comments. In recovery, we say change or die. Right. Right. I am grateful for that. I think that one positive of of this kind of COVID, you know, financial everything crisis, everything crisis, health crisis, mental health crisis is that for many people, the starkness, the urgency of change or die has gotten a bit more clear. And I appreciate that. I, I, I think that that, that's a, that is a silver lining. I have said it before. I'll say it again. It is a silver lining of a truly terrible and tragic situation. Mm. So um, we're going to, here's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to say goodbye on the podcast. Stephanie Blair cut that chunk out. We're going to just wrap that up, but we're going to stay on a few more minutes because people had some questions and, and like, what do I do kind of things that we really can address, but we're not going to put them in the podcast. So, um, so stay on even after I say, mm -hmm. thank you for joining us today in this conversation. As you can tell, it's complicated and, and there are lots of different ways to go about it. And you can, um, enjoy uh the same kind of tension around that the karen and i have uh, where we have different opinions about how this should be approached but thanks for joining us and as always you can come on wednesdays at 2 p.m pacific uh and join us for facebook live or you can listen to the podcast the following tuesday so thanks for joining thanks everyone